0: This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. This week, Florida became the third state behind Texas and California to hit 1 million coronavirus cases. Governor Ron DeSantis says he won't impose more lockdowns or mask mandates, and schools will stay open. Several vaccines are on the way, but in the meantime, health experts are bracing for a surge in cases after the Thanksgiving break, and they're warning it could be a bleak winter. So, how will the Sunshine State navigate the next few months of the pandemic? What does the hybrid model of schooling, in person and online, mean for parents and students? What about contact tracing and tracking the disease? What does that look like as cases increase? And how does Florida stack up against other states in terms of tackling this pandemic? We're live with a panel of experts. We'll be joined by Dr. Amesh Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Elvina Chu, epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health in Orange County, and Dr. Maria Vazquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. You can join the conversation as well. Call in with your questions or comments, one 866 338 5252. You can also send us a tweet. We're at WMFE Orlando. That's at WMFE Orlando. Well, Dr. Vasquez, I want to start with you. Uh, The Governor of Florida, of course, announcing on Monday that essentially it's the status quo for the spring semester. Um, Schools statewide must offer in-person education, as they have been, but they'll also have the funding for online education if parents want it. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of demand for online schooling uh, countywide?
1: Well, uh, good afternoon, and thank you for the opportunity to be on your show this afternoon. Indeed. Uh, our rollout of our innovative plan uh, earlier this fall has gone very smoothly. Uh, parents were given the choice of having online learning through Orange County Virtual School. Our innovative model, which is our Launch edge plan which allows students to learn from home but follow uh, the daily schedule as they would in a face-to-face classroom and of course our uh, traditional face-to- face learning Mm -hmm. our parents uh, have been uh, terrific in working with our schools in implementing the plans our uh, schools have been able to offer uh, various supports to the families At the end of the first nine weeks, we offered the parents an opportunity if they wanted to switch, and we saw an increase in the number of families that chose to move from the launch ed model to the face-to-face learning. Mm -hmm. Currently, we have put out um, a a survey to our parents uh, asking them once again if they want to uh, change their modality and uh, our schools will continue to support those changes. Uh, we ask for the information so that we can make the necessary adjustments uh, in the learning environment, making sure that all the protocols continue to be in place, that there is social distancing. Uh, if there are any teachers that we need uh, to come back who are um, teaching from home, that they're given ample notice of uh, that pivot as well. Mm -hmm. And so we expect to have uh, more parents uh, choose to come back face-to-face. The protocols that we have put in place, our work with the uh, Department of Health uh, over the last several months really have been critical to uh, our success in – providing that face-to-face instruction with uh, not many cases uh, in, in our school. And so we, cont- we hope to continue to, to see more of our families come back face-to-face. That is the best uh, modality for the majority of our students. And for those that choose to stay at home, we will continue to uh, provide the necessary supports. Uh, One of the assurances that uh, has come with this new uh, spring plan is that we have more outreach to families who are struggling, whose Mm -hmm. children are struggling, and that they um, make the choice to come back face-to-face. If they choose not to come back, they will be asked to sign a a document that they've been made aware that their child is not being successful academically uh, and that the recommendation is that they return to -to face-to-face learning.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. We will, however, continue to provide interventions uh, and offer opportunities for those children to continue to return to -to face-to-face instruction.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Maria Vasquez. She is the Deputy Superintendent of the Orange County Public Schools uh, System. Talking about the impact of the pandemic, the news that uh, the Florida Department of Education will continue to offer funding for online as well as in-person education for the spring semester. Uh, One thing that Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran mentioned was that there are some 24 school districts whose roles increase, and therefore they will get more funding. Is OCPS one of those?
1: Uh, No, we are not one of the districts that has seen uh, an increase from our projected uh, enrollment in the fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are uh, down approximately, um, uh, I believe it's about uh, 5,000 students from our projection.
0: Does Does that have some implications for funding then? Does that kind of put you in a bit of a bind next year?
1: Well, we don't know what the um, economic outlook is for the uh, next school year, the 21-22 school year. We do know that we are being um, held harmless mm-hmm. uh, for the second uh, semester, and that is great news uh, to all of the districts. But we we do know that this pandemic uh, is changing the face of education. I don't believe we will ever return Uh, to education as we know it prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It it has uh, opened up some new opportunities, uh, not only for Orange County, but for districts uh, across the country. And it's although there's been a lot of negative impact, there has also been uh, some opportunities for us to rethink what education looks like. So maybe uh, that means we'll have more flexibility uh, in in time. Mm -hmm. We may be able to look at um, offsetting some of the hours so uh, families have more choice. We may be able to look at uh, having more online learning opportunities as well. And so um, the funding, we we do not have a, a definitive answer on that. I do suspect that... Some families now that have had the opportunity to experience virtual learning may take advantage of that where previously they would not have.
0: Mm-hmm. Just um, before we uh, go to our next guest, uh, Dr. Vasquez, do, can you give me a rough sense of the proportion of students who are in person and online at this point?
1: Currently we have uh, 42% of our students that are um Face to face, and the rest are learning uh, through the uh, launch ed model. We expect that that is going to increase uh, for the second semester. Right. We have uh, we have found that many of our families who were reluctant to send their children to school the first nine weeks have found that they uh, that the systems we have in place to keep our children safe are effective. The other piece that uh, cannot go unmentioned is the social emotional aspect of uh, the children learning uh, at home. We uh, have seen and know that there is an increase in uh, social emotional concerns with our students, that interaction, that they have in the face-to-face learning is critical Mm -hmm. not only to the attainment of knowledge but to their social emotional well-being and uh, just to give you perspective the first nine weeks 38 percent of our families were Mm face-to-face and now we're up to um, I think it's a little bit over 42 percent and I expect that that's going to continue to grow once they are in school The feedback we've gotten is that they absolutely love it. They Mm. miss their friends, they miss their teachers, um, and there is no replacement for face-to-face learning.
0: Indeed, and that was the message we heard from uh, Governor Ron DeSantis earlier this week as well, though stressing, of course, that they are leaving that funding in place for online as well, which I know a lot of school districts were... um, happy to hear that's um, kind of uh, security that they know the funding is there for the next semester. I want to uh, bring Elvina Chu into this conversation. Elvina Chu is an epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health in Orange County. Thank you for joining us. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the uh, you know, the positivity rate in Orange County. We're, we're looking at about uh, 15 to 24-year-olds having one of the highest positivity rates of all age groups. Is there a connection, Elvina, between that and the uh, return to school over the fall, do you think? Or is it—is it too soon to say that?
3: So I'm not sure it's necessarily a return to school, which is um, being reflected in the percent positivity rate. Over the last several weeks, what we have seen with this pandemic, which is a little bit different now than before um, in our previous peak in June, is that the age group that is contributing the most to our pandemic um, has been in the 15 to 24 and the 25 to 34 mm-hmm. um, age groups. Um, pre- uh, previously, um, at the peak of the pandemic, um, the median age was approximately 35 and skewed older. So what we're seeing now over these last several weeks is perhaps um, maybe some pandemic fatigue and mm-hmm. maybe people who may have let up on um, their pandemic precautions and letting their guard down a little bit. And uh, so we know these, in this age group, these are the people who are most likely to be out and about since we have sort of reopened or phased in um, the gradual reopening of our of the rest of our businesses
0: sure and then as far as the positivity rate goes in orange county it's around 6.3 percent how does that compare to how we were looking earlier in the summer
3: um so it's it hasn't changed that much a little bit of it is um there's been so much there's been a large increase in testing Mm -hmm. and so you know that large volume it's it's hard it sort of dilutes out what might be um small changes and so we've been hovering around 6% over the last several weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what about contact tracing too? Because, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, the health officer for Orange County, for the Department of Health in Orange County, uh, Ralpino, was talking about, you know, hiring new contact tracers, trying to beef up the, the uh, cadre of people who are doing that work. And that's clearly kind of critical to trying to get a handle on this pandemic. Over the last couple of months, how has that gone?
3: Um, so we did add uh, 65 new staff persons to help us with the contact tracing efforts, and this includes not just um, case investigators or contact tracers, but also, you know, a lot of, uh, there's some data that comes with that, so some data management and support there. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, with the increase that we've been seeing, um, it's a, a gradual increase, so not quite the same kind of spikes that have been seen in the Midwest um, or in the Northeast at this point, but we have been seeing this gradual increase over the last several weeks, and so we've been focusing our contact tracing and case investigation efforts on those groups that are the most vulnerable um, where spread might occur, so those in congregate settings, certainly um, in our long-term care facilities where their uh, persons are older and mm-hmm. have um, health, health comorbidities and might be at um, greater risk for severe illness or possibly even death. And so what we've been focusing on with our contact tracing is getting to those groups um, and also as well as the 15 to Mm -hmm. uh, 34-year-olds who have been potentially spreading this the most.
0: It seems from what I understand of contact tracing, there's quite a lot of work that goes into it. Do you have enough contact tracers? I mean, would it be nice to have some more?
3: Of course, you know, public health funding has been decreasing over the last couple of decades. So um, I will never I will never decline an offer for additional staff or additional funding. Mm -hmm. But uh, so what we're trying to do is just get the most out of what we have, you know, focus our efforts on where we can um, get the biggest uh, juice for the squeeze, basically. Um, So focusing on those high risk groups and those groups that are contributing the most to the pandemic here in Orange County.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about the pandemic and how Florida is facing down the next couple months as uh, winter is upon us. You can join the conversation. Send us a comment on Twitter, at WMFE Orlando. If you have comments or questions about how we're doing in central Florida, you can also give us a call, 1-866-338-5252 is the number. I want to bring uh, Dr. Amesh Adalja into this conversation. He's with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Uh, Dr. Adalja looking at the national level, how does Florida compare to other states in this latest uh, COVID-19 surge?
4: So I think it's kind of a, a mixed picture. When you look at different states, you have to remember that we have a very heterogeneous outbreak and each state has a little bit of different dynamics. And I would say that you know, th- there are states that have done better and states that have done worse than Florida. Overall, I think that Florida has done better than many people expected because in terms of the mobility of the population, what types of social activities people are partaking in—they seem to have fared fared well, given that there wasn't the same level of public health control that we saw in places like New York or places uh, in, in the northeast of Pennsylvania, my home state, for example. And and I do think that what what Florida, the, the best aspects of Florida's response are that it has a targeted public health approach, where they were looking in the summer surge at what activities were causing infections and really drilled into those while leaving other parts of the economy relatively free or unrestricted in terms of people's activities. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the model that we want to do, is that you have test, trace, and isolate capacity, and then you take that data, the case investigations, the contact trace data, and then you use that to inform public health in a precision-guided way. And and that's what many states need to do. And I think you could always do it better in in any state, and and I think that that's something that we we've seen other countries do really well, like Taiwan and South Korea, but it's something that's lack that's lacking in many states, and I think that's where you see a lot of the blanket orders because we don't have that ability to to be able to d- differentiate who's infected and who isn't, and what activities are spreading it and what what aren't. And I think, um, you know, I think Florida's kind of straddled that line hmm. compared to to other states.
0: There's a lot of comparisons to other countries, right? I mean, people, for political reasons or other reasons, will say, you know, look at what Sweden did or, you know, look at how things are going in the United Kingdom or Australia or New Zealand, for example, to try and make a point one side or the other. But, I mean, can you do that? Because every country has a a different health system, different ways of tackling this, populations are different. I mean, the United States is unique. So, um, I mean, are there countries we can look at and say they're doing it right and we could sort of emulate what they're doing?
4: While there are differences between countries, I think when you look at the United States response, I think you have to go back and rewind to almost a year ago. And what really set the U.S. response off on the wrong foot was the fact that there was a lot of evasion from the federal government about what this virus represented. And we gave this virus a major head start January, February and half of March before people started to take it seriously. We had a flawed testing program. We had no ability to know who was infected, who wasn't. We had a, an exclusive focus on China when this virus was already spreading in Europe as, as early as, as December, at least from the report, reports that we're seeing now. And and when you could test here, it was so restricted. You could only test people from China, only with lower respiratory tract infections. And And what that did is, allow chains of transmission to start all over this country that eventually bubbled over in hospitals in Michigan and in New York and in Florida and in New Orleans. And, and that's what set the whole tone. So I do think we can learn if you go look at Taiwan, they jumped mm-hmm. into action on December 31st, 2019. We didn't jump into action in, 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 and we actually took the wrong actions uh, late, in, late in March of, 20, of 2020. So if you give a virus that transmits this efficiently, that much of a head start, and you don't have public health officials well resourced. Remember, public health is often chronically under resourced. Nobody ever prioritizes it, and they can't hire people very quickly in, in terms of contact tracers and get scaled up very fast. If you don't do that, if you're not proactive and completely reactive with a virus like that, you've lost the battle.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Mesha Adalja with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. We're also joined by Alvina Chu, epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health, and Dr. Maria Vasquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. Uh, you are listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty talking about how the Sunshine State will navigate the next few months of the pandemic. Stay with us. Uh, we'll be back after this. You're listening to Intersection on 90.7 News. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the pandemic and how the Sunshine State is facing that down, how things are looking in central Florida. Joining us, Dr. Amesha Shadalja with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Avina Chu, epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health in Orange County, and Dr. Maria Vasquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. If you have a question or a comment about the pandemic, give us a call, 1-866-338-5252 also tweet us we're at wmfe orlando i wanted to talk a little bit about the prospect of a vaccine because there are several kind of in the works and the news has been largely positive in recent weeks two vaccines are on track to get emergency use authorization from the food and drug administration we heard wednesday from Governor DeSantis, what the plan is to roll that out and give access to frontline health workers, uh, people who are particularly at risk, including those in long-term care facilities, and Orange County officials planning to be able to distribute a vaccine as soon as possible. Dr Adolja, I mean, recent polling shows about 46% of adults over the age of 50 want to wait until others have gotten it first, and 28% have said they were unlikely or very unlikely to get a vaccine, even if offered at no cost. What do you think needs to be done to increase confidence in those vaccines coming out?
4: What we have to do is be proactive. Many times when it comes to vaccines, the, the infectious disease and public health fields are reactive. We wait for the anti-vaccine movement to set the terms of debate, and then we spend time trying to debunk their baseless conspiracy theories. And we can't do that with this vaccine. We can't afford to do that. We have to be really transparent with the public, talk about what the the risks are, the benefits, talk about the trial data, talk about how the prioritization uh, work was done to see which groups will get it first, and really just be able to answer all questions. I think that there's understandably some concern because we saw politics being injected in the approval, for example, um, by the FDA of hydroxychloroquine on an emergency use basis and with convalescent plasma. So some people are worried, but there are a lot of good signs when it comes to, for example, the, the CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies, as well as Moncef Slaoui, the head of Operation Warp Speed, really standing by this vaccine, as well as public figures like Doctor Fauci, as well as the the, the UK uh, regulatory agency, which just approved the Pfizer vaccine. So there's a lot there, and you know, I will be someone that is, would be happy to take the vaccine today if it was offered to me. And I think that we're, we're going to really just have to be aggressive hmm. uh, to get people's confidence up.
0: There's been. Uh a group of you know former presidents, uh, Barack Obama, um, George W. Bush, among them, uh, saying they'll get the vaccine on camera if it makes people feel better. But I wonder if people are just too entrenched in you know what they think. It, it might. It seems that it might take a little bit of work to break through people's silos and and have them change their minds.
4: Yeah, it's definitely going to be the, the one of the hardest tasks that we, we face. And I, I do think it's important that the presidents get vaccinated on on camera. I think that models good behavior and it shows that they're stepping forward. Uh, Gerald Ford famously did that during the 1976 swine flu uh, scare. This is something that I, I think we're we're, we're going to have a hard time with certain people who have fixed irrational beliefs about vaccines. We're never going to get them to be vaccinated. But when people start seeing the benefits, when they see that nursing home residents are protected and they're not uh, being sent to the hospitals in record numbers, I think people will start to see the benefit of this vaccine and see it increasingly as a way forward. I think that you know, this is a great illustration of the power of vaccines. If you, They're, they're underappreciated. Uh, people take them for granted. But you can see how bad our world is right now because we have no coronavirus vaccine 17 years after SARS was discovered.
0: Mm-hmm you're just joining us uh, we're speaking with dr Amesh adalja from johns hopkins center of health security talking about vaccines and the prospect of that I'd like to hear what you think as well are you lining up or will you be lining up to get that vaccine once it's widely available and give us a call one 338 5252 or send us a tweet we're at wmfe orlando um alvina i'm wondering you know, some of the concerns that have been raised have been communities of colour, black Americans, for example, having the highest per capita death rate from COVID-19. And at the same time, there's polls showing that uh, black Americans are the least likely to say they would get vaccinated. I'm wondering if the uh, the Department of Health in Orange County it has some plans kind of at the grassroots level to do some outreach and talk to communities of colour to, you know, increase uptake of vaccinations.
3: We do. Absolutely. Actually, we have um, we are, have and are creating strike teams or field teams um, specifically to go out into the community. So this would be um, not not like the mass vaccination pods that you've seen, maybe like our large flu vaccination um, drive throughs, mm-hmm. but really um, a, like a nurse and perhaps a, a person, a barker, so to speak, um, <laughs> to go out into the community um, at, at specified locations. So we've been working very closely with our Orange County government and our Office of Community Health here at the Orange County Health Department to identify those places where, number one, we've seen um, clusters and uh, hot spots for cases, and also where there is a need um, for, you know, those communities that might have some the greater health disparities or less access to health care or not um, or vaccination rates that are historically low. And so we're hoping that these smaller teams, you know, where you can get a personal one-on-one conversation, answer people's questions um, and just, and set up, um, we usually set up in community centers or health fairs um, sometimes with um, neighborhood centers. And also we've, uh, Joined certain events that uh, some of the city commissioners and the county commissioners have had. Mm-hmm. Um, we've set up with health, uh, with um, fire departments and police stations. Um, food drops so we've been working closely with our homeless shelters and also um, our partners who distribute food um, to those who need it like second harvest
0: Hmm. so the and and talking about things like drive-through flu vaccinations have you sort of looked at the um, flu vaccination drive this year in late 2020 as a, a model for how you might distribute something like a COVID vaccine once it's available
3: Certainly. Uh, You can call it a dry run Uh, for the COVID vaccinations that are coming up soon. We expect uh, in Orange County to have vaccine here um, towards the end of December at the latest. Uh, So we have been using uh, we recently held three flu vaccinations, Mm -hmm. uh, mass vaccinations that were drive throughs, over twenty five hundred vaccines given through those over the course of three days. Wow. And so those are very successful models, and so we will be using that. So it will be um, a multi, you know, like a, a multi-process approach. Mm-hmm. So the mass vaccination to the general pub- public when vaccines are available to the general public, but also um, the small strike teams that will go out to the vulnerable populations and uh, you know really embed in the communities. Mm-hmm. And then also we've been working with our um, healthcare partners, so um, acute care centers, and then also. Specifically, of course, long-term care facilities, um, intimately involved in helping them get enrolled so that we can have COVID vaccine um, for those most vulnerable populations who reside in their facilities.
0: Right. Uh, Alvina, do you stay on the line there. I've got a call coming in from uh, Steve in Haines City. Steve, you're on the line. What's on your mind?
5: Well, I've got two questions, if I may. Sure. Um, number one, I'd like to know if they've got any idea how much this is going to, Cost uh, for you know a member of the general public to get the coronavirus vaccine, mm-hmm. and number two, um, I'm in my 60s and I got the first half of the shingles vaccine, and I wouldn't have any problem getting the coronavirus vaccine when it comes out, but I have to wait six months to get the rest of the shingles vaccine. Can we get the coronavirus vaccine at the same time or close to the shingles vaccine?
0: Mm, good questions. Well, thank you for uh, calling in with that, Steve. Um, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to uh, put that to you, actually, um, uh, Doctor Adalja, Cost of vaccines because. Um, yeah, that seems to be, uh, you know, something that's still maybe a little bit up in the air. There are a number of different vaccines. There's some costs associated with transporting and and storing those vaccines. Um, thoughts on what we might be looking at cost wise?
4: What I my understanding is that the out-of-pocket cost is going to be zero dollars. Uh, this is something that's going to be paid for by taxpayer funds. So obviously we will pay for it, but it's not going to be something that you have to pay a copay or or out-of-pocket cost to to receive. And I, the same was true during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. I remember just lining up at a school and getting my getting my vaccination. Uh, so so that's the case.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the, the idea of kind of doing a twofer, like, is this just a, a one-off vaccine? Is it the kind of thing where you can get it at the same time as as another shot for something else like shingles?
4: Well, I mean, I think it is important to get shingles vaccination and to complete that shingles vaccine. I do think that m- many of the places that are going to be giving this vaccine are probably going to not have the shingles vaccine at ha- on hand. Mm-hmm. And you may, both of those, so we know that the shingles vaccine, Shingrix, the new shingles vaccine does have a lot of side effects in terms of muscle aches and pains. And we know that these the, that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have similar uh, injection site reactions. So you may want to space them a little bit so that you're not getting hit with both of those at the same time. And there's people going to be collecting data on, on the, the side effects of the coronavirus vaccine, and it might muddle the data collection a little bit uh, if, you, um, if you have both of those vaccines at the same time. So I would probably talk to your doctor about trying to get the shingles vaccine ahead of time, or try to separate it so that you don't kind of have a confounding thing there and you don't have a lot of reactions at the same time.
0: Right, okay. Um, I wanted to bring you into this part of the conversation, Dr. Maria Vasquez. Uh, you know, once a vaccine's available, uh, will staff at OCPS be required to get it, do you think?
1: At this time, there's been uh, no discussion of requiring uh, staff or students to have uh, the vaccine. Mm,
0: Okay. Schools do play a role, though, right, in in how this may work. I'm wondering, has there been sort of thought given to, um, you know, when there is a pediatric vaccine available, how how that might kind of work in?
1: Absolutely. Uh, We will... Uh, cooperate and work collaboratively with um, our our local health care providers and the department of health to assist in any way uh, as it relates to uh, the vaccines and the distribution and communication of the importance of getting uh, the vaccines
0: mm-hmm um, Alvina Chu, I just wanted to sort of tip that back to you again, uh, the notion of, um, you know, people who may be wanting to get two vaccines at the same time. Is is that something like a conversation that, that's going on at the health department level? Like if people are sort of thinking, well, can I combine this shot or could I combine a shot for COVID with something like shingles?
3: I, so we would be on the lookout for guidance from, of course, the um, ACIP, um, who the national Advisory Board for Immunization Practices and from the CDC about whether or not there's enough data to say if you could get one, if you could combine vaccines like that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are certainly we do have vaccines um, that people get at the same time.
0: Right, um, Dr. Adolja. One of the questions that has been out there has been around that development of a, a vaccine for kids. Um, is is this just another aspect of maybe the United States being a little bit behind the eight ball there in terms of um, developing that, and and you know how that might might fit into fighting this pandemic?
4: Well, you have to remember that this vaccine is really about decreasing the impact of the pandemic, and what we've seen from the data is that it is people that are older people who have other comorbid conditions that are really contributing to the death from this virus, as well as contributing to the high rate of hospitalization. So if you're trying to design a vaccine to get the maximal impact, you're going to look at where you can use it most strategically, and that's going to be high-risk individuals. Mm
2: -hmm. There
4: will be data on pediatrics, pediatric use. I know Moderna is starting a trial in pediatrics, but the impact of vaccinating children may not be as strong as impacting vulnerable populations because although children can get infected and some of them can get ill, they don't tend to be hospitalized. They don't tend to to die from this and they don't tend to be magnifiers of infection, especially the younger children below the age of nine. So it's become, it's less of a priority because of the epidemiology. So when you think about a vaccine, you've got to think about what is the target group? So we don't give shingles vaccine to children uh, because it's not a major issue for them. And that's, that's the, same, the same thing here. So, but I do think overall we will get a pediatric coronavirus vaccine, and it will likely have some impact on the spread. But again, the priority needs to be to get it to the high-risk individuals so that we can really relieve hospitals of the pressure and, and put this public health emergency behind
0: us. Is this kind of a, a an all-or-nothing approach that has to work, though? Because one thing I'm wondering is if, you know, there's talk, for example, of a couple million doses available in Florida in fairly short order, but is that really going to be enough? And do you just need to really flood the zone to, to for this strategy to actually be effective?
4: Yes, the more people that get vaccinated, especially those that are contributing to hospitalization numbers, the better it's going to be. And it's going to take some time to vaccinate a significant proportion of nursing home residents, for example, to see the impact. But I do think we will see an impact when the nursing home populations are protected, and then it starts to move out to community-dwelling individuals with high risk. But eventually, you know, we want to get to a position of herd immunity, which may be, you know, up to 70 percent of the population, maybe a little bit lower because not everybody contributes to spread. It's kind of this 20-80 rule where 20 percent of the people cause about 80 percent of the cases. But but that's where we, we want to eventually get. So, you know, these are lights at the end of the tunnel, but it's going to take some time to get enough people vaccinated to see a measurable uh, strong impact on on transmission in this country.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Intersection on ninety point seven News. I'm Matthew Pettit, speaking with Dr. Amesh Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center of Health Security. Also uh, joining us. Uh, Dr. Maria Vazquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. And we're joined also by Alvina Chu, Epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health in Orange County. Uh, You can join the conversation as well. Send us your questions or comments on Twitter at WMFE Orlando. And uh, you can also give us a call, 1-866-338-5252. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Intersection on 90.7 News. I'm Matthew Petty. We're speaking about talking about the coronavirus uh, pandemic and how Central Florida and the rest of the state are dealing with it as we stare down the next couple of months. Health experts saying it could be a grim couple of months as the pandemic kind of makes a resurgence. Um, Joining us on the program, Dr. Amish Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Alvina Chu, epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health, and Dr. Maria Vasquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. Um, Dr. Vasquez, I wanted to come back to you and just talk about some of the um, specifics, the challenges that I guess people have been sort of figuring out over the last semester in terms of online learning. Uh, I know there were some issues with having the right number or the you know, the appropriate number of, uh, of devices for students uh, at the start when, when schools weren't actually back face-to-face. H- has the county sort of been able to even that out and make sure that it has enough uh, devices and some of those technical issues have been resolved in the last uh, few months?
1: Uh, yes, we're happy to say that uh, all of our students uh, have been issued devices. Orange County was uh, ahead in the digital uh uh, learning we had a rollout plan where we were going to roll out devices in eight waves and we were uh, scheduled to roll out wave number seven which was um, the second third of our elementary schools uh, this past August and so we had to speed up uh, uh, cohort number eight and that's where the delay came uh, in the ordering of those devices. Mm-hmm. The other issue that we, that we continue to have is connectivity. And while we have uh, been very fortunate to have donors uh, provide hotspots to families that do not have uh, internet, some families are still experiencing um, poor connectivity. Uh, in the areas where they live, uh, another challenge that we uh, have had is that you know parents now are also uh, engaged with those platforms, and it, for those that are learning at home really are the the go to if if children are are having challenges with that and and we have had to Uh, Offer opportunities for uh, professional development for our teachers. Again, those that were in the last wave, uh, Mm -hmm. Cohort 7 and 8, we had to speed up their training. We've also uh, provided training for parents. We have live Facebook uh, sessions available uh, for parents throughout the week. We have outreach at the schools uh, for parents having difficulties. And then another uh, aspect that we are dealing with um, is really providing uh, services to our families who have children uh, with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Some of them are extremely fragile and are unable to come to school for face-to-face learning and providing some of the services that they need virtually. Ha- has been uh, a challenge, and we continue to work with them uh, and reach out uh, to other districts to see how they are um, coping with that challenge. And it's it's across the entire country, mm-hmm. and we hope uh, that we will be able to resume face to face learning and be able to provide uh, the services that they need.
0: Mm-hmm. Got a question coming in from uh, Charles in Orlando. Charles, you're on the air.
5: Well, thank you so much for taking my call. And I really appreciate your show because it feels like maybe there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two quick questions. The first is, if you've had COVID, say, six months ago or or seven months ago, would you be advised to take the vaccine? Uh, That's the first question. The second question is, um, how do we know? I'm I'm assuming that we have some data or some way of knowing the long-term effects, say, two, three years out. But since it's such a radically new approach to vaccination, uh, as I understand it it is, then how do we know what the long-term effects might be?
0: Mm -hmm. Good questions. Thank you so much, Charles. Um, Dr. Adalja That's an interesting point. I mean, there's been some kind of reinfections, which I guess maybe some people weren't expecting to see. What do we know about the the usefulness of getting a vaccine if you have actually gone through a bout of COVID already?
4: Well, reinfection is really exceedingly rare. There's not going to be a a difference between if you've had it, if you have the antibody Mm -hmm. versus if you don't for vaccination purposes. I think we're going to try and vaccinate everybody in the high risk groups, irrespective of whether they had it. And of course, we know that If you had it, that's going to give you some level of protection. It may last for several months. We don't know exactly how long, but it is still something we're going to recommend that people get vaccinated irrespective of their prior status with COVID-19.
0: Mm-hmm. And then as far as long-term effects, I mean, one question, I guess, may be given the sort of accelerated pace of development of these vaccines, are there some question marks about, you know, just how long those vaccines would normally be in trial and whether some of the wrinkles have been ironed out before they're actually rolled out on a broad scale?
4: Well, what we've seen is very strong data from Phase 1, 2, and 3, as well as animal studies. And it is true, obviously, that we we want to monitor people after they've been vaccinated for several years after they've been vaccinated. But with every other vac- with other vaccines, you know, that's what we do. We, we actually they get approved and then we do post-marketing surveillance. There's still post-marketing surveillance going on for the HPV vaccine Gardasil. Mm-hmm. So that's very normal. There hasn't been any kind of safety cut corners cut or anything. That's a, a misperception. The fact that this went so fast is because we did harness new technology that didn't exist a decade ago and got vaccines into trials very, very quickly. And I think this is going to change the way we do vaccine development for many other infectious diseases in the future. But there wasn't safety uh, that was actually compromised. And this is no different looking at this post-marketing, the post-marketing surveillance that we'll do for longer-term effects. And you have to remember that every vaccine is a risk-benefit ratio. And you have to look, what is the risk right now? What is this Mm -hmm. pandemic poses as a risk? it's very, very high, uh, the, the, the risk of the pandemic. And the benefit of this vaccine, if it can decrease the risk from that pandemic, if it can decrease your risk of dying and being hospitalized, I think it really, this vaccine is going to outweigh uh, especially in the high risk groups uh, outweigh any kind of um, side effect that you might might see even down the line.
0: Elvina Chu thinking about some of those um, teams that will be going out to you know educate people and and kind of facilitate distribution of the vaccine at the county level. is that a question you're anticipating from people? you know what might be the side effects of this?
3: Certainly, I mean that's something that we try. We have to address whenever we give any vaccine um, out in the community. So I, we will rely on, uh, you know, just the the truth, which is that the vaccines can be safe and that the risk. And the benefits you should weigh the benefits one point that i wanted to make since we were talking about vaccines um while we are optimistic about the rollout of these vaccines not everyone will be able to get it in that first wave and so i just wanted to make a point that we're coming up into this season this winter season Mm -hmm. you know we just passed thanksgiving the winter holidays are coming up and there will be more cases and increasing cases. Um, the United States just passed um, 31, more than 3,100 deaths in a day. And to put that in some context, um, for people, that's more than all the people who died on 9-11. So if we continue with this upward trend, it will be like that every day. Right. And so I don't want people to forget about the non-pharmaceutical interventions um, that protect us, what we call the good pandemic precautions, you know, in layman's terms, the wearing of the mask, the social distancing, and the good hand hygiene.
0: Are we already seeing uh, like an uptick in cases based on, you know, what people might have picked up over Thanksgiving if they're mingling with people?
3: We have. Hmm. We have. Um, One thing that I wanted to point out also about the change that we've seen since the July, since our July increase that happened here in Orange County and in Florida is um, the, the, the Transmission and within household clusters and um, multigenerational transmission. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, um, towards this in the summer, uh, about 30 percent of our cases were linked to a known lab confirmed case. And now we're at uh, a little over 50 percent. And so essentially um, what we're seeing more of is not necessarily something like a large um, super spreader type of event or going or going to spring break or the beach, it's really um, easy transmission spread within a household. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be children to parents, parents to grandparents, and even um, great-grandparents, which is what we're seeing um, across all across our county in multiple um, zip codes.
0: A mm-hmm. uh, question coming in from Tom. Tom in Orlando, you're on the air.
5: Hi. Um, thank you very much, and I really appreciate the show. I appreciate this uh, particular topic. Uh, My wife and I uh, were identified uh, two of the first 10 or so cases in Brevard County back in March. Um, She was sick for about a week. I was sick for about two and a half uh, and felt a lot worse than she did. Um, Neither one of us was hospitalized. Mm. Uh, But uh, in October, so seven months after uh, we had been ill, uh, we got antibody tests. Uh, She tested positive and twice I received a negative uh, test for the antibodies. One of the reasons suggested is that I have MS and I'm on an immunosuppressant uh, disease-modifying therapy for that. I'm wondering uh, what these vaccinations, uh, how that might interplay with uh, people on various uh, immunosuppressant Uh, medications.
0: Mm. Uh, Great question, Tom. Thank you so much for calling that in. Uh, Dr. Adolja, I mean, is that just yet another of those things you have to take into account when you kind of weigh the risk benefit of vaccination versus, you know, maybe what some of the risks may be?
4: It is something you have to to weigh. And the clinical trials for some of these candidates did include people that have immunosuppressing medications on board. And you have to remember, we worry about vaccines with the immunosuppressed when we're talking about live vaccines, so for example, the chickenpox vaccine or the smallpox vaccine or, or yellow fever or or even the measles vaccine, this the vaccines that we're seeing with the Pfizer, the Moderna, even the AstraZeneca, these are not live, what we call live vaccines. These are just fragments of the, vac- of the virus. So with mm-hmm. Moderna and Pfizer, it's just a gene. It's not even a part of the virus. And with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a little bit farther behind in the pack, that's basically a uh, uh, not not a live vaccine either it's using another virus to carry the protein so this isn't something we usually think about when being dangerous to immunosuppressed people we often worry about the immunosuppressed not mounting a good response to the vaccine because because of the immunosuppressing medications or the immunosuppressing condition might blunt the response to the vaccine but i don't believe there's going to be a safety issue with this vaccine and immunosuppressing uh, with immunosuppressing individuals because these are not live vaccines like the the chickenpox vaccine
0: mm-hmm. Um, George calling in from Melbourne. George, you're on the air. What's on your mind?
5: Hi, Matthew. Hi, panel. I appreciate all you are are doing to cover the subject. Uh, I have a concern. It's it's kind of a question, uh, and I think it was touched on briefly. The idea that uh, the trials were conducted uh, with people taking normal precautions, masks, distancing, etc., I have a real fear that if that's not communicated well continuously from now through the time that people are vaccinated, people are going to let their guards down and we're going to not going to experience that 90 or 95 percent efficacy because people just are thinking, I have the vaccine, good enough.
0: Mm. Yep, uh, good point. And I think, uh, Alvina, you were kind of touching on that. People should remember there are other things that people need to be doing as well. Does that sort of speak to that need for some of the other methods of stopping s- transmission of coronavirus?
3: Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, the vaccine and the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the case investigations and contact tracing—all of these are, are layers or tools in our toolbox to help um, get a handle on the pandemic or the or and try to reduce transmission. So not one of these things alone is going to be the silver bullet that, you know, cures everything or our panacea. Mm. So I think we need to get that message out is that while we are rolling out the vaccine, you know, we have no idea what, how long immunity might last, and so it may not last forever. And so while we are trying to reduce the number of transmissions, we should use all of the tools that are there, which includes the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the contact tracing to isolate and quarantine persons who might be infectious and in the population.
0: Uh, Dr. Maria Vasquez with Orange County Public Schools I'm wondering sort of what the role of schools may be in that education component. I mean, that we have now, you know, a year of of students kind of basically being told about all the things they should be doing to prevent the spread of this. Do you, does, does it seem like that is going to be a, a useful tool in, you know, combating this and, and getting a handle on the pandemic down the track?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I believe that's one of the main reasons why we have been so successful in reopening our schools, uh, there is constant reminder uh, of uh, making sure that they're socially distanced, that they're washing their hands. Uh, our board enacted uh, a face covering policy which requires that masks are worn um, at all times with very few exceptions. Uh, and all of that continues to be reinforced uh, throughout the day, both verbally and and visually. And I suspect that that is going to continue even um, once uh, we start to get the vaccinations until we have uh, full control of the of the virus.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Amish Adalja, just in the final minute we have here, uh, one of our listeners kind of called in and said, that "You get this, the sense that there's some light at the end of the tunnel." Um, as somebody has been studying this for the last year and sort of watching it unfold, what is your sense? Do you feel like we are rounding a curve?
4: I do think you know these are lights at the end of the tunnel, but remember, we're still in a tunnel. And between now and when the general population has access to this vaccine. We are going to see many people get infected, many people be hospitalized, many people die, and many hospitals worry about their capacity on a day-to-day basis. So even though these vaccines are very promising and we're really enthusiastic, and they will put this pandemic behind us, we're still in this pandemic, and it's not something that we can afford to let our guard down. And the more people let their guard down, the more the community hospitals are going to go into crisis. And I think that's, well, that, that's got to be the message, that this vaccine is a, is a light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not there yet.
0: Do you think that message is getting through to people, though?
4: I I do. We've been saying it a lot, but I think that if you look at people's behavior and you look at the number of cases that are occurring, you look at how many people travel for Thanksgiving, I mean, I do think that there are many people in this country that are not behaving as if we're in a pandemic, that are not following the common sense recommendations of of wearing a mask and uh, washing their hands a lot and and trying to avoid congregated and and crowded Mm -hmm. places. And I think that you know, this, is gonna, this has been the battle since the beginning.
0: We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Amesh Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Also, Alvina Chu, epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health in Orange County. Thank you, Alvina.
3: Thank you.
0: And Dr. Maria Vasquez, Deputy Superintendent of Orange County Public Schools. Thank you as well. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us online at wmfe.org slash intersection. Production assistance for today's show from Bill Johnson, Daniel Pryor and Abe Abiraya. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.